Hello and welcome to Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee with me, Bex. And me, Eason. And this is all about Twin Peaks The Return, part 12. Let's rock. Ooh. Did it rock? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I don't, yeah. It was, uh, I think, you know, it was an interesting episode. It improves on watching it a couple of times. But it was not what I was gearing up for. Um, certainly in the last 24 hours, there was a bit of a frenzy on Twitter of tweets coming out left, right and centre about how this could potentially be as uh, revolutionary as part eight. Mm. Maybe not in content, you know, or style, but maybe in terms of what it was going to do to the mythology. Yeah. And I yeah, have a lot of reservations about this episode. Like I say, it has... It has improved on rewatching, um, but I'm not completely sold on it, and I think that it'll only really become clear, sort of towards the end of the return. I mean, I think it needs a bit of context this episode, and I just think it lacked it within its own hour. Yeah, I, I do wonder if some of the sources from which things were being hyped up for this episode might have expected that certain things they were involved in filming were going to happen because of chronologically what happened in part 11 with all the stuff in Las Vegas. Maybe they thought, oh, now is the time that all this stuff is going to happen. And then it completely blindsided them that there was about 10 seconds spent in Las Vegas and that was it. Which I think tells you two things. One, it confirms that people are really only aware of what they filmed. And they don't know when these things are going to air. They can probably guess. Yeah. Um, but secondly, it tells you that I think, given that a lot of the tweets were around the Las Vegas storyline, uh, especially a lot of talk about Candy and her importance, you get the sense that that is going to be a pretty, uh, you know, a pretty big and important finale to that strand of the uh, uh, Dougie subplot, at least. Yeah. It was interesting that Matthew Lillard said in some interviews that he didn't know what episodes he was going to appear in. Mm. And he was surprised when he was in it very early on. Um, And then just wasn't in it again for a really (laughs) long time. So maybe they don't know. Maybe they were kind of taking a bit of an educated guess. Thinking, oh, it must be coming. And then actually we got a load of completely unexpected stuff with a billion new characters. And it was all very confusing. Yeah, I wonder if actually what we're expecting in the Las Vegas plot is maybe a series of events which directly follow on from the scene in the restaurant yeah. which is why they think there's more that they filmed and that hasn't been seen yet so I think there's there's just something which is happening and um, I think speaking about that as well I think when the end credits rolled and this was another short episode as well a little bit shorter than the other ones I think it'd be fair to say that those credits should have probably said barely starring Karma McLaughlin because <laughs> <laughs> I think this was the least Coopery episode of the return and of Twin Peaks thus far he was in it for all of about what 30 seconds yeah he was in it for long enough to get hit in the face with a baseball <laughs> that, that was it which is probably a good analogy for how how I felt as well <laughs> you know, I felt like somebody threw something at me and I just didn't respond because I was in shock the whole time <laughs> but also I think when we saw the double R logo at the beginning yeah. 
and it changes colour and looks different every time. Yeah. When we saw that it was like black and white against a red background, we were like, yeah. ooh, ooh, something lodgy is going to happen. It's going to be a lodgy one. And yeah. instead, uh, no. no. <laughs> but I think there's the one thing I'm thinking about with this episode is, and again, I don't want to come across as like an apologist for everything that's happening in this, thinking everything's fantastic. I think this was a weak episode. But I think that there are elements of it that just aren't uh, easy to understand or interpret in light of what we see within this hour and certainly in light of what we've already seen. I think it's almost like a catch-up episode where they're trying to bring certain plot lines forward to allow the synchronization of maybe the events in Twin Peaks when, as a result of this episode, it's, it's very likely now that uh cole and the gang are gonna head down there yeah um so maybe they needed to get that set up and i think certainly the well there's a you know obviously a big spoiler the uh appearance of audrey might be because her storyline may not be i think particularly relevant to the overall arc of twin peaks but maybe they felt that it works better in the context of all of her scenes bunched together in these few episodes maybe it's not the kind of jacoby plot that you can imagine maybe being played out for a reason over the full 18 hours uh, there's no reason potentially to drag that plot out maybe because it's not that important and so what people think about that i think we'll only know at the end of the return but yeah i think it had some interesting moments in it um i think this is probably the first hour of the return which is one that will only really work in the context of the full 18 hours. It's almost like a, you know, a lull in a film that happens mm. sort of at the beginning of the third act. Um, it's a, it's like a false start for the third act. You know, yeah. act two has ended and you think, oh, it's going to immediately kick into gear for the final act. But there's a bit of a, a pause. And it does feel like this was essentially a an hour of, you know, that dude sweeping up at the roadhouse. <laughs> but there are things in there. And I think just like that scene, it was intercut with Jean-Michel Renault making that co that phone call, which will become important, I think. This felt like an extended sequence um, that had moments of tremendous importance in it, but it's just hard to filter those out. But yeah, is that is that a fair appraisal, do you think? Yeah. I think, speaking of Audrey and spoilers, though, th this is just a general message mm for now tv that i would mm. like to send to the universe because i'm sure now tv are not listening but i feel i need to say this anyway so now tv is the um kind of on-demand tv streaming thing that we use to access sky atlantic which is the channel that carries twin peaks in the uk and obviously we stay up at three in the morning and watch it live because we're nuts and we've got a podcast to record most of the people we know in the uk who watch twin peaks they are sane and rational people mm. and they sit down and watch it on a Monday night on yeah. demand. Um, they do screen it kind of live as a broadcast on a Tuesday night. But I mean, most people are catching up on uh, a Tuesday. Yeah, exactly. Most people catch up when, whenever they want yeah. to. It's certainly how we watch almost all of our TV yeah. these days. We, we hardly ever watch anything live except Twin Peaks, really. And so most people are accessing it through a catch up service. Right. So can now TV please not use a thumbnail of Audrey as the picture to accompany this episode yeah. for people who are trying to access it? Yeah, it's, it was ridiculous. 
normally what happens is they they put up a placeholder thumbnail picture which will be a picture from a previous episode yeah. um, and that will stay with it for a while and then they'll replace it with something potentially spoilery later in the week but we when we went to watch it again tonight there she was for anyone who is deciding to oh watch this week's twin peaks yeah. and you're confronted with the image of audrey before you even watched it and this particularly annoys me because so a couple of weeks ago i wrote a blog post about spoilers and particularly about twin peaks and doctor who and how good twin peaks has been about keeping everything secret in the run-up to to the series so that you really don't know what you're going to get from the show and kind of contrasting it with the way certainly the last few years the bbc have been really bad at spoiling their own show through their own marketing materials kind of needlessly it's I, I wrote a very, very long blog post about all my thoughts on this, so if you're interested, you can read it. But one of the things that really annoyed me about, and, and this wasn't intentional on the BBC's part, but there was this little mini episode of Doctor Who for the 50th anniversary that they put on the iPlayer, which is the BBC's on-demand service. And it had a surprise in where a particular character, played by a particular person, appears in the episode that no one was going to be expecting to actually show up. And they had actually managed to keep it a secret except some idiot at the iPlayer end use a thumbnail image of that person for accessing it through the system. Yeah. So you couldn't watch the thing without it being spoiled as to the fact that they were in it. And it just seemed like, it is happening again. <laughs> it is happening again. Because when we first saw Audrey in the show, we both audibly gasped yeah. because we've been waiting for her for so long. And now anyone trying to watch it on the on-demand system tonight is going to know she's in it. It's kind of a shame. Anyway, that's rant over. <laughs> Is it though? Is it? Yeah, I think we should uh, get to the reason we're here, which is to go through uh, <laughs> part 12, um, an interesting episode. We're going to talk about what happens. We're going to talk about what we think it all means. And uh, we should also quickly mention as well, uh, before starting, that we've also got another episode which we just put up, which you might want to listen to as well which is a listener feedback episode called My Pod Has a Message From You. And that was put up yesterday on Sunday and it's going to be up you know, for a while. But actually, we were a bit worried because we put it up at the last minute and we thought, wow, there's an episode called Let's Rock. It's going to you know, have so much stuff in it that it's going to invalidate everything we're talking about within 24 hours of it going up. What we can say is that that hasn't really happened at all. <laughs> so although all the things we talk about are probably still liable to be proven wrong, uh, it's still, I think, a fun listen if you want to find out about uh, what some of the people who are listening to the podcast have been speaking to us about in terms of things that they think are interesting plot points, uh, discussion items that you know are, are kind of a bit bigger picture in the in the Twin Peaks universe so they're not like really specific things that we would usually talk about on an episode by episode basis but they're more talking about broadly what's happened over the last you know 11 episodes and where things might be going and what some of the bigger themes might actually be and mean yeah so things like kind of Laura's arc as a character and all the kind of Arthurian references that have been cropping up things like that yeah it was a really fun one to record actually yeah and we'll do another one in a couple of weeks yeah yeah cool so anyway back to episode 12 let's crack on
So we jump straight in to the swankiest hotel in Buckhorn. I don't know how they found a hotel like that, but it's very swanky. And they're in some bizarre kind of curtained off area of the bar. I don't know what kind of hotel bar has a place like that, but it was very fancy. And at, uh, Cole is looking for bugs, it looks like, in the room and can't find any. Not candy style looking for bugs. No. Like, <laughs> like, uh, like wiretapping bugs. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then Albert and Cole sit down and basically induct Tammy into the Blue Rose gang. And we get a bit of an info dump as to the history of the Blue Rose cases. Yeah, so we find out that it was kind of a spin-off post-Project Blue Book, which was kind of wound down. And ultimately, it's the FBI's secret division, which is working on kind of strange supernatural cases. Yeah, so it's the X-Files. It's basically the X-Files, yeah. I was trying to think of something else, but when you describe it like that, it is the X-Files. It's in, it's in the FBI it's dealing with X-Files. And its name comes from uh, the last words of a woman who was involved in one of the first cases who said Blue Rose. I don't think that's ever going to be you know, something that's brought up again. It could be like a secret history of Twin Peaks kind of thing or final dossier event if ever they go back to that. But the key is they say that you know, Cole uh, sets up with uh, David Bowie's character, Philip Jeffries, who has been recurring throughout the return as this presence who hasn't been seen yet but briefly obviously appeared in fire walk with me we know this also concurs with, what, with what's described in the secret history of twin peaks and you have a set of agents who are leading this you have cole um philip jeffries you have chet desmond who is mentioned again for some reason uh dale cooper and albert yeah uh, i think the notable name there of all of them is probably chet desmond yeah, because it's it's been a long time since we've heard that name. Basically, it's been since Fire Walk With Me since we've yeah. heard that name. He hasn't been name-checked at all in the return so far. Yeah, he's mentioned very briefly in uh, The Secret History of Twin Peaks. And it's noted, I think, that he went missing. And Sam Stanley, his partner, uh, I think he left the FBI. He became an alcoholic. It's unclear if that was triggered directly by what happened uh, with the events in Deer Meadow or if it happened afterwards but Chet Desmond has never been spoken of since but obviously when we meet him in Fire Walk with me he clearly knows a lot about these Blue Rose scenes because he's the one who explains Lil's code to Sam Stanley who's been brought in and it does also feel that Sam is somebody who maybe should have been on that list as well because he was being brought into the fold yeah. maybe just like Tammy is here yeah and Albert mentions, oh, you've probably noticed that I'm the only one who hasn't disappeared without explanation. <laughs> Very ominous. So if Chet Desmond did disappear without explanation, does this basically end the theory that the first part of Fire Walk With Me is Cooper's dream in some way? Is that actually definitely now Chet Desmond and he really did disappear like that? Yeah, I think um, it was already very heavily ruled out by his name check in The Secret History of Twin Peaks when it was clear that he was a real person. It's still unclear whether maybe Cooper was, you know, in his dream reliving these events, mm. but using Chet Desmond, who he must have known as an avatar for him. It's unclear, you know, because he does, he does kind of look quite similar as well in terms of how he dresses yeah. in it. So you do wonder if maybe Chet Desmond was a real agent, but when Cooper is dreaming of him, maybe if this is happening... He's uh, 
projecting himself onto him in some way. So, yeah, it does very broadly rule it out, but you never know with this. I don't think it's really going to be brought up again, but it could be. Yeah. And then, once of all, raised a glass to celebrate Tammy being basically introduced into this circle of mostly doomed people, Mm. which is not good, but at the same time, we kind of know that she's going to put together the dossier. Yeah, but when... When is this really the same Tammy Preston who went through the dossier? I I have no idea. I there's going to be a there has to be some reason why Tammy is being presented like this because it's all very well saying, oh she was the best in her class etc. But that doesn't seem to come across um, in terms of how she's being portrayed on screen. That doesn't really mesh with what they're saying about her. So that makes it quite jarring as well. Yeah, and the also, the other question is why haven't we seen the dossier turn up yet? Because it feels like things in Buckhorn are almost over. And where's Chip and his phone and <laughs> Hank and Barney and the other one? <laughs> well, we have a whole list of new names to deal with today. Oh, dear yeah. me, yeah. Right. So they have a toast, and then Diane's on her way, and Diane emerges from between these floor-to-ceiling red curtains. Yeah. And it was basically like a, a visual klaxon going off, saying, Diane cannot be trusted. <laughs> Diane cannot be trusted. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Diane cannot be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> what gave you that idea? You don't, you don't emerge through curtains like that and, yeah. uh, and, and be okay. Uh, and interesting, she drinks vodka just like Sarah Palmer does. Yeah, that is... Well, to be honest, I think she probably drinks anything. <laughs> <laughs> And then they kind of say to Diane, oh, we want to deputise you because we need you. Which, I mean, at some point, they had to come up with an excuse to keep her around. Because mm. they obviously are wanting to keep tabs on what she's doing because they're tapping her phone. Uh, so she kind of goes along with it on the basis that she'll get to find out what happened to to Cooper. And then she's the one who gets to say, let's rock. Yeah, it's it's an odd moment, that. Because I think in the run-up to this... We, and probably everyone else, thought, when has Let's Rock been used? And, you know, the little man from another place says it in Cooper's Dream at the beginning of season one. And also it's written on the windscreen of Chet Desmond's car in Fire Walk With Me when Cooper is shown the vehicle by Carl Rod. So we know it has such logy connotations. I think that's one of the reasons also, not to go on about it, but why this episode was... A real subversion and perhaps unnecessarily so of what we thought was going to happen yeah because it's a phrase which is specifically used in a certain context in the twin peaks universe and i don't think there have been other instances in the previous 11 hours of titles not being uh contextualized correctly by the twin peaks universe yeah so a lot of them have come from the log lady and they've been part of her phone calls to hawk which have delivered very critical um uh, messages or plot points that allow him to carry on the same with even you know this is the chair mm-hmm. related very specifically to briggs's chair and it's just odd that this phrase is being used but seemingly without the logic connotations that it could be but like you say it does involve a character saying it who has emerged through red curtains um but also behind the red curtains it looks a bit odd because they do kind of 
flash open just as she's walking through. And it does look like they're on a set because it doesn't look like there's anything behind other than an empty an empty warehouse almost behind. It's a very weird thing because you don't see the same level of detail behind the curtain as you do in front of it, but I don't know. Yeah. And it's also weird that they then have someone saying Let's Rock only a couple of minutes after the first reference to Chet, Jes- to Chet Desmond in so long. Yeah. Um, it, it can't be a coincidence, but it, 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 set, it set the tone for an episode that then didn't go the way we were expecting it to go. Yeah, I actually like this opening. Like, you know, at that point, I was like, "Wow, this is going to be this is going to be really crazy. It's going to have lots of things in there." And it's one of those episodes where I was thinking, you know, I'm really tired. It's three in the morning, but this is going to keep me awake, <laughs> and it's going to keep me awake long afterwards as well. <laughs> and in the end, it kept me awake for probably all the wrong reasons. <laughs> so then we cut back to Twin Peaks, and Jerry's get out of the woods. Yay! Or has he? has it he's kind of running across a field <laughs> it was a bit sound of music in some respect <laughs> but at the same time i think you know it's just weird that they've dangled this storyline for so long uh, it's been a few episodes now i still don't have a real sense of how long he's been in the woods but i mean he's running like he's free like he's been trying to get out for a very very long time mm. um he did look a bit like he was being chased you know, but I don't know if it was him just running until he saw the light and he was trying to get out. It's just a bit weird. I think the one concern I have with this is, is that it for Jerry's character? You know, is that was that his appearance? He's like lost in the woods. Was this like a a light version of the Doctor Amp Jacoby thing, <laughs> where they brought somebody in to do that? I'm not sure. I still think he's he hasn't found civilization yet. No. He could just be in a clearing in the woods. And uh, I think there's still hope that he might bump into uh, the team going to Jack Rabbit's palace. Yeah, Team Jack Rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) Very witty name. And then uh, we catch up with Sarah Palmer. Yeah. Um, And it's one of the bits from the teaser trailers. You see her walking through the supermarket um, and she's loading up her shopping cart with uh, all the ingredients for a good bloody mary yeah you see the uh it's tomato juice first in there and then she's in the aisle looking for the vodka and then it's kind of interesting here because she's pushing the trolley along when she sees the vodka she stops she knows what's going on she starts taking bottles of vodka i think it's smirnoff anyway isn't it uh this show has done tremendous product placement it's ridiculous <laughs> but then she runs out of the Smirnoff and then she kind of looks at the others, but she doesn't want them. So she clearly has an alcohol problem, but she's not uh, sort of that promiscuous with what she's going to drink. Yeah, it's like she has a routine and she doesn't deviate from that routine. Yeah, I think it's almost like she feels comfortable with certain things and, you know, it could just be something to do with her mental state almost like a kind of an OCD style response to wanting to have the same things the same way all the time but given what happens later on I wonder if being in this routine is something that reassures her in some way because it keeps her protected from potentially what's been going on for 25 years but more likely maybe what's been happening more recently to her it does seem like she's in the middle of something which is getting worse yeah, and also I've got to say, if that is Smirnoff, 
it's pretty pricey over there, isn't it? <laughs> the amount that it rang up on on the till. I was like, really? For three bottles of Smirnoff and a couple of bottles of tobacco? It's a lot cheaper over here. I don't know. I don't know how much that's priced in the US. Because <laughs> I, I don't know where it's made. It might be one of those things that's imported and then it's it's a lot more expensive. It could be. <laughs> it could be. I don't know. I have no comment on this at all. I'm a gin drinker anyway. Yeah, I'm I'm the vodka drinker. Yeah. But I don't really drink Smirnoff. So. But yeah. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> I digress. Uh, standing stones. Mm. What I like. Yeah, so she she goes to the till and there's all the the jerky packets hanging behind, and she starts freaking out about the fact that there are new ones. There are these turkey jerkies next to the beef jerkies, yeah. and and again, this might be just because it's got in the way of her routine, and she was expecting to see everything in a certain way, and some of the things that she says. So she says the room seems different, hmm. and it, it's like any kind of deviation in this routine that she has. Is, is making her feel afraid. Yeah, I think everything she's saying can be read in terms of what's actually happening in the scene, but also in terms of how she is currently perceiving events. I don't think she's seeing the world the way that everyone else is seeing it. And the reference to a room, the fact that she's literally in a convenience store, uh, I think she says, what else does she say? Uh, men are coming. Yeah. You know, all these strange phrases that start off, um, you know, well, well, to an outside perspective, like the cashier, they seem like they're the words of somebody who is a bit unstable, maybe ranting and raving about these things. But it's clear in light of what we know. And given that Sarah does seem to have psychic abilities as well and is connected in some way to the lodgers because I remember at the end of season two she was able to deliver that message uh, from the Black Lodge to Briggs. It's very odd that she starts referencing things which are relatively new in the Twin Peaks universe so the woodsman might might be the obvious thing that she's talking about. Um, it's kind of maybe to do with the fact that maybe she's been to the convenience store in the last few years, in the same way that uh, Philip Jeffries had been to one of their meetings. Mm. I wonder if she's been transplanted there as well, a few times maybe. And maybe that's why it's left her completely sort of mentally scarred by the whole uh, series of events. Yeah. She's not saying, things can happen, something happened to me. Yeah. And then she starts talking to herself in a way that enables her to be calm enough to get out of the store and to her car. But is that? Do you think that's like a routine that she has to ground herself and take control of a situation, or it, or is there something more to it? Like there is some kind of inhabiting spirit involved. Yeah, it's. I think it can be read both ways, but I do get a sense that given she has channeled spirits within the lodge before, I wonder if there is something inside her which has given her this knowledge. On one hand, she may have seen it, but maybe her seeing these visions and uh, having these thoughts is a product of what's inside her. And I can just imagine a situation where there is an inhabiting spirit in her, which is why she's sort of so tormented as well. Um, who it could be, I don't know. I mean, it, I mean, I, my initial thought when I saw this was, you know, is it Laura? Is Laura inside her and trying to warn people? Is that why Laura appeared at Cole's door? 
um, at the hotel in the previous um, hour? Is it something to do with that? Is this the first moment where Laura is connecting with uh, her mother now that she's been whisked out of the lodges and potentially back into the real world? Yeah. And and this being Twin Peaks, everyone has started to overanalyze the packets of jerky <laughs> that are hanging up there. Um, I know that people on Reddit have been looking at the logo that's been put on there. Well, it's like one of those kind of like stair heads with the horns mm. coming off it. And said, does it look a bit like the symbol on Mr. C's card mm. and the mother experiment thing with the horns? I don't know, it just kind of looks like a... It looks, it, like like a... it looks like the logo you'd see on a packet of beef jerky. <laughs> I'm, I'm more intrigued by the fact that the brand is called Albatross, given the connotations of Albatross, kind of like an albatross around your neck being a, a, an emotional burden that you can't get rid of. And, you know, all stemming from the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, where if an albatross is following the ship, it's a good sign you're going to have good wind. He shoots the albatross and therefore curses the ship and has to wear it around his neck because, um, because of what he's done. So, I, I don't know, it could just be that someone put it was a cool name for a brand of beef jerky. Again, this could all just be related to different types of jerky. But <laughs> interestingly, I think the fact that she finds the turkey one odd is a bit funky in some way. The thing it made me immediately think of was what Laura said to James in Fire Walk With Me. That uh, thing about how she was like a, a turkey in the corn in this gobble-gobble business. Which is kind of funny, but also very tragic as well. He's talking about how lost she is, I suppose. Mm. So it's weird that this turkey thing would be a reference. The other thing I thought about was, is this, to Sarah, representative of a situation where there are two things which seemingly on the outside are the same, but inside they're different. Mm. There's something fundamentally altered about it, but it's hard to perceive maybe so you're marketing this as yeah it's just another type of jerky but actually it is fundamentally different in the same way that you know when diane was taken to see mr c uh with cole and albert and tammy when she first turned up and after she came out and she said there was something missing in here and kind of pointed to her um heart you know implying there was something that was switched around inside uh, Mr. C compared to the Cooper that she knew, one wonders if actually the you know the turkey jerky is in some way representative of some doppel jerky. <laughs> so, so turkey jerky is the doppelganger of beef jerky. It is. It is. Maybe maybe some jerky <laughs> went into the Black Lodge and it uh, faced itself with imperfect courage. And then there was a big race to get out, and the turkey jerky got out. I don't know. Something bad happened. Turkey can never beat cow, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, Parks and Rec. Mm. Um, yeah, there's something. Uh, there's something. There's something odd about this. Uh, well, I kind of have a have a strange vision of uh, Leland Palmer in the lodge saying, "I did not eat any jerky." <laughs> <laughs> but again. These are all wild speculations uh, because, yeah, it's it's there's just a weirdness about this scene. And I think, again, it's a wonderful moment. It's nice seeing Sarah Palmer again. I like the fact they haven't put her in any other context than to introduce her just to be Sarah Palmer doing something weird from the offset. And yeah. this is going to be her arc. 
Yeah. Also, weren't there the musical cues in that scene? Weren't they from Fire Walk With Me? Yeah, so we're seeing that as well. So I think there were, there were lots of things. You have Chet Desmond, you have Let's Rock, and you have the musical cues as well. So there's a lot of hints of uh, Fire Walk With Me coming through in this part in particular, although they have been appearing as well mm. in previous hours. And then we get this really brief scene between Carl and Crisco, I think his name is, who's yeah, like a new character from the trailer park. Yeah, in the credits it says Crisco. Yeah. And uh, Carl is asking him if he's going to sell his blood at the hospital. And he says yes. And Carl says, oh, don't do that. And he starts asking him, oh, you know, have you, do you install a propane tank on that guy's trailer? And did you mow lawns and rake up and you haven't been paid for any of this and he said i don't like people selling their blood to eat so you know have and then he pays him for the work that he's been doing and he says don't pay me any rent this month he says the next time you're thinking about selling your blood come and see me and although there are you know potentially kind of supernaturally things talking about people's blood and stuff like that i do wonder if this is just one of those little mark frost scenes where he's just making a commentary about modern life and the extent to which some people are literally just scraping by day by day and are driven to the point where they would have to go and sell their blood in order to pay their rent or to eat something that day even though they are doing so many things within their own community that they're not getting any recognition for yeah i think it's uh it's a scene which strongly aligns with Janie's speech about the 99%. Um, I think it's a really interesting moment. I think it's a nice it's a nice scene as well. Again, emphasising Carl's compassion. Um, I mean, we saw it in a big way when the hit and run accident happened. We saw it when he came to Shelley's aid uh, in part 11. And I think they're setting him up to maybe play an even bigger role. Uh, in the future as well um, but it's nice that he has a scene it's nice that his so so we noted it i think when it was first there but his sign is given a proper close-up there saying you know do not disturb before nine thirty. yeah which is nice uh, but yeah it's like a little short bit of carl rod but again it's it's interesting because without context it almost seems like they shot this scene and like many aspects of this episode they seem to just group lots of things together mm. that maybe didn't fit as well earlier on or later on because they maybe broke the flow of earlier episodes or needed to be introduced before later things happened. So I think they're all important scenes, but they do seem kind of grouped together in a bit of a mishmash kind of way. And then we're off to Las Vegas for the one and only time this episode uh, where Dougie Coop and Sonny Jim are in the garden and Sonny Jim is trying to get him to play catch, but he just stands there and gets hit in the face with the baseball. And it, it's quite a kind of funny, kind of slapsticky moment because you're, you're waiting for it to happen because you think he's not going to be able to respond to this. He's not going to know what to do. And then it happens, but it's still funny. Uh, and that's what we really get. But what is interesting is that this is the first of several very specifically father-son things happening in this episode. Yeah. And the first one is quite a sweet and funny one. And they will get rather less sweet and funny mm. as it goes on. I think the one thing that's, again, a bit jarring about this scene, even though it's very, very short, is the fact that the way that 
Cooper is being ushered out by Sonny Jim, it almost seems like this is Dougie Coop at an earlier stage of his development, especially after we've seen him really make big strides in the previous hour. It seems odd to see him suddenly being so incapacitated again, which mm. is odd. And then to have this as the only scene is is uh, very strange. What does happen as well, though, is um, and I think this might be the important bit of this scene as well, is they show uh, the house from the outside where they live. And what you see is, I think it's a bird, isn't it? Flying over the roof. But you don't see the bird, you see the shadow going across the rooftops. Yeah. And what that immediately reminds me of was the kind of shadows that you used to see of things flying past very slowly in the Red Room sequences mm. in the season two finale. Oh, those freaked me out, those things. Yeah, when he first went in, you could see that... I think there's there's a couple when Jimmy Scott is singing. Yeah. You see, like, the shadow of something, which could even be, like, a bird moving past in the background. So there is something, again, about these scenes having, you know, maybe the use of shadows implying that there's something lodgy about them. But again, I still think they're real scenes. Um, although, coming back to it later, I suppose, I think there are scenes in this which aren't necessarily as real as we think they are. Yeah. So then we're back with Sarah again um, at the the Palmer house. Why she hasn't moved out, I genuinely don't know. It's the same thing as uh, The Exorcist. Because yeah. I, I remember the first time I watched that, not only was I freaked out, but I thought, if that was happening in my house, <laughs> I'd get out as quickly as possible. <laughs> you know. And even after it was solved, I would never, ever go back. Now, after everything has happened in the Twin Peaks universe to Sarah Palmer... It's strange that she's stuck there almost. It's like she can't leave. It's almost like this is her own personal waiting room. Yeah. And she can't go out because no one's told her she can. She hasn't had Laura appear to her to give her that instruction. I do wonder if there's an element of that as well. She has not been released from her torment as well, just like everyone else. Um, and there's something to do with the fact that she seems trapped in her life, but it was clear how much of a struggle it was for her to go out yeah and she seems a lot more uh confident when she's back at the house you know yeah. she's talking back to hawk a, a lot more she's um a bit feistier than she was so maybe there's something about her being you know under some kind of influence whilst in the house and certainly because you see the fan going as well yeah. Yeah. which is a callback to some of the most terrifying, unsettling moments of Laura Palmer's scenes in Fire Walk With Me. I mean, it looks very weird now. It looks very strange the way it's shot, but it, it always looked alien, but now it just looks so terrifying. I mean, it's just a fan. I keep telling myself it's just a fan, but it's really freaky to see it going around. And it's, it's almost like you're looking in and you're wondering what's inside. But it almost feels that there's something looking out back at you as well. There's a presence that comes with that, which is really interesting. Yeah, so when Hawk arrives at the house and you see that the fan is going, you start feeling like there's some kind of presence in the house. Yeah. And then he's asking her if she's alright. He's heard about what happened at the grocery store. She gets a bit belligerent about it. She's like, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. And then you hear some noise going on. And it's like bottles crashing about in the kitchen or something. Yeah. And he asked if there's anyone there and, and she says, 
just something in the kitchen. Mm. That's a weird way of putting it. Isn't it just something. Yeah, it's not someone. It's it's something in there, and she knows what it is because she kind of gives it a look, and it's almost like she doesn't want anyone to come in the house and see. But she's she's seems like she's captive in there. Um, but by what, whether it's real or not, I don't know. Yeah. But something is keeping her there. And the first thought I had was because the the young guy who worked at the grocery store said, "Oh, I know where she lives. I'll deliver the stuff because she paid for the her groceries and then left without mm. them." And I thought, oh, is he delivering them? But then you pointed out that you can't see a car or a bike anywhere outside. Yeah, so there were lots of bottles of vodka. There's like three bottles of vodka, two bottles of tomato juice and a couple of other things, and a box of cigarettes. So it's odd that it could be the grocery store clerk, because if it was, you'd expect a vehicle outside. But it's very clear you see the house and you see Hawk's car pull up. Yeah. There's nothing else around. So I think on one hand, you're meant to think it might be the grocery clerk, and it might be, but I think there's something in the house. Yeah. Uh, my guess is something woodsman related. I think there's a woodsman in the house. There's something which she can see, which is terrifying her, but which she, I mean, maybe she doesn't want what's in there to leave. You know, the fact that she said men are coming, she knows that there are these creepy woodsmen around and maybe they're making more of appearance. Maybe they're making more of an appearance as, you know, the time is moving towards, I don't know, the lodge opening or, you know, the 1st and 2nd of October. Yeah. And when Hawk says to her, you know, you can call if you need help, help of any kind. Yeah. And he's clearly trying to get across to her that actually there are people in the sheriff's office who are aware that there is more than people might think yeah. happening in this town, in this world. Because obviously you've got... Hawk and Sarah are both from the old guard. They were round for the Palmer case. They know that there is more to this world. Um, you know, in the same way that that Harry would, if if he was still there, and to to an extent, Frank is is understanding as well. And and Andy to an extent, although um, we haven't seen that much of that much of Andy. Yeah, I I think he's still going to be involved in taking out Richard Horn. I think that's his arc. Yeah. yeah, and I think Bobby is beginning to understand, but he doesn't know as much as people like Hawk, the Log Lady, mm. Sarah, maybe Frank do as well, as to the the full extent of what's going on. So it felt important that it was you know kind of two members of old Twin Peaks talking to yeah. each other about this, one offering help to the other because they both understand, not not actually understand what's going on, but that there is something going on. Yeah, and certainly I, I can't remember exactly what Sarah said, but it was something like how, you know, she's in a very bad story. You know, yeah. there's something very, there's something that even she can't bring herself to, I think, define because she knows that no one would believe it. But she knows what it is. That's the problem. She knows it's real. And I think that's maybe the thing which has driven her to the point that she's at she knows this thing is real and she probably thinks there's no one around who can help or would even listen or understand so she's kind of trapped herself and i wonder if that's why she's kind of kept whatever is in the kitchen in the kitchen mm. um, and i hope it's nothing but my sense is there's somebody in there i mean it could even be laura wandering around maybe she's keeping laura there and that's what's freaking her out maybe she thinks it's a it's a ghost that she's seeing um but there's something about what's in there, and I think it's it's creepy because the fan is going. 
yeah. if the fan wasn't going i would think it's the grocery store clerk and you know whatever but it's not that there's something going on in that house and it's keeping her captive for the time being and maybe has been for the last 25 years so then we jump to moving through the hospital corridors and it all goes very shades of Renette Plowski and Jacques Renault when they were both in the hospital. The way that the way the camera used to just kind of move through these half empty corridors very slowly, steadily, very eerily. And you get a shot like that. And then you get a shot of, of Miriam in intensive care. And again it, it, it kind of reminds me of, of the time when Jacques Renault was in intensive care. And we all know what happened to him afterwards, mm-hmm. uh, when he knew a bit too much. Yeah, you do wonder if Richard's gonna go there. You know, sneak in and uh, and do a Leland. <laughs> uh, and that's all that you actually see of her. Mm. We don't see her talk to anyone. She seems unconscious. But evidently she has spoken to someone. Yeah, it's strange. I think it's one of those scenes which highlights a fundamental issue that I have with this hour of Twin Peaks, which is they tease so many different things, but they don't deliver on them. And you need to deliver on at least a couple of things, even minor things, to make it seem like things are progressing. Um, otherwise, it just seems like you're being, you know, always dangled the carrot of a solution or answer or something. It just never comes. Yeah. And then we get another incredibly short scene again with Diane at the hotel bar. She gets a text that she says, Las Vegas. And then she replies, they haven't asked yet. Mm. They haven't asked about it yet. And that's it. That's that's all we all we get of whatever the heck Diane is up to. Yeah, I mean, it's addressed a little bit later on in the conversation between Cole and Albert. So we'll discuss it then a little bit. But it's weird. She's still in communication with somebody. Um, it's strange that we haven't seen Mr. C for a very, very, very long time now. Mm. It's been a few episodes. And... It's odd not to have him around because he seems so important. And actually, because it's been a couple of episodes now, I don't really feel his presence anymore. Yeah. Which is strange. In other parts, when he wasn't on screen, you could feel him in the world. But at the moment, he is not as um, sort of at the forefront of things as one would expect, maybe. And it just seems a bit odd. So this text doesn't maybe have the impact it should because, you know, there's no counter scene of Mr. C to imply that it's to do with him anymore. And again, you know, we still don't know who she's talking to and whose side she's really on. It's all a bit strange. Um, And again, what this Las Vegas thing means, I presume it's something to do with the presence of Dougie, whether they've figured out where the ring will actually take them. Mm. but it's unclear and then we're back off to the Great Knoll then and uh, Sheriff Franktroom is visiting Ben to break the news about Richard so evidently by this point Miriam must have spoken to someone because Frank now knows that Richard was driving the truck um, that hit the boy and also that he tried to kill Miriam so she must have spoken to someone because otherwise they wouldn't yeah. know that, that last part and so he, he goes to tell Ben and there's some really odd things about the scene. First of all, he refers to him as your grandson Richard mm. or my or my grandson Richard. No mention whatsoever of who Richard's mother is. Yeah. 
They don't talk about notifying anyone, whether Audrey, Donna, whoever. They don't say such and such person has to know. Yeah, they've gone straight to the grandfather, you know, bypassing a parent, implying the parent isn't around. Yeah. And it, the only other reason I could think of was that because Frank says, oh, Miriam doesn't have health insurance and she needs her medical bills paid, is that why he's gone to Ben? Because he knows that Ben has money and, and, and might might pay it. Yeah. yeah. But you would still at least expect them to have some kind of conversation about, oh, have you told Audrey or have you told Donna or whoever it is? Yeah. Have you told someone? He, You know, Ben shouldn't be the only person in Richard Horn's life who is a next of kin that you would go to about yeah, something and like this. It's also unclear if he's gone somewhere first. You know, it's not like he's gone to Richard Horn's parents and then he's decided that they don't know anything and so he's gone to Ben. This is the first person I think he's gone to. Yeah. Uh, so why you would skip that, it's, I don't know, intriguing. Yeah. And then Ben says, that boy has never been right. He says, Harry had a lot of run-ins with him, none of them too bad, but each one worse than the last, yeah. which implies some kind of escalating behaviour on Richard's part, but that they did not expect that, that he would ever get this bad. But again, no mention of, of the mother at all. And then in the midst of all this, Ben gets out Coop's old room key yeah. and says, oh, we got this in the post the other day. And I think it's the room key for, for Special Agent Cooper's room. And he says, I thought you might like to give it to Harry. I thought Harry might like it as a memento. Which implies that no one in this situation, either Ben or Frank or Harry, holds any ill will towards Cooper at all. Otherwise, why would they want such an item? I think the implication has been, actually, that Cooper just disappeared. Because I think in the first conversation that Hawk has with Andy and Lucy, maybe back in part one or part two, they say that, you know... Cooper hasn't met Wally and it just is implied that he just skipped town almost. This also tells us that he skipped town so quickly that he didn't check out of the Great North. He took his key with him. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting um, because no one flagged that as something that was weird, I think. So clearly Doppelcoop didn't try and keep up the pretense of being regular Coop for long if he just disappeared and didn't bother checking out. I mean, it's a minor detail. It probably means nothing, but there's something odd about that as well. The fact that he just left. And I do wonder how this will all play in now, because is this just going to be, you know, another piece of the puzzle that Hawk will see as real evidence that the genuine coop is still out there somewhere and he needs to be found? Yeah, because they, they are starting to think that there are two Coopers, yeah. especially after... Briggs's message yeah. and Frank said oh this is odd because we've just reopened a case involving him and it's it's funny that this should turn up right now but that, that's that's got to be some kind of clue that is going to lead people together I think Yeah. given what we then find out later which is that Audrey still seems to be around assuming that that scene can be taken at face value which it might not but if she still lives near Twin Peaks and she's married and people must know where she is. Uh, why wouldn't they also go to her if she was Richard's mother? Or why wouldn't they go and f ask her if 
she's heard from him or has been asked to help him in any way or knows where he might have gone. So I'm kind of leaning more towards the idea that his mother is just not in the picture at all. Hmm. And the one who's not in the picture at all is Donna, not Audrey. Because yeah. we know that she's not going to appear. We don't know what happened to her. But we know that she's not going to turn up. And could that be why when Richard was calling Sylvia grandma and it all got a bit kind of aggressive, was he just being spiteful and sarcastic because she's not his grandmother? Yeah. Um, so I don't know, maybe it will still turn out to be Audrey, but I'm leaning more towards Donna at this point. Yeah, we've been saying this for a while now and I think I kind of lost faith in the idea for a little bit, but I think actually it is building building up again. Um, I think that you know donna being richard's mother would be an interesting um reason why sylvia and ben split up mm. in the first instance uh there's still a question of a of who the father is yeah and i know that there's a conversation that dot hayward has where he says that uh coop went to the hospital i still think that was for the ring the alcave ring i don't think mm. it was to see Auditing. I think that was a misdirect uh, deliberately. But I do wonder, I, you know, given that things are getting a little bit meta in the world of Twin Peaks, I mean, what with Albert's, you know, what happens in season two and mm -hmm. things like that. So it would be kind of interesting if Richard was actually the son of Mr. C and Donna. I don't know how that would work because they never really interacted at all. But if it did, it would be a really interesting uh, comment on what actually happened in season two. So it's been relatively widely reported that there was a plan to have Cooper and Audrey have a relationship. But that was nixed by Laura Flynn Boyle, who was in a relationship with Carl McLaughlin in real life. And she didn't want to have that portrayed on screen so as a result of that uh the cooper audrey thing was kind of you know that kind of disappeared very quickly and instead they brought in annie as well um and john justice wheeler and john justice wheeler to kind of really <laughs> you know, yeah no that's right to kind of you know pull them in separate directions but maybe that's half of the comment they're trying to make here i mean maybe richard is you know he is an evil character but maybe in a very meta sense, <laughs> the union of uh, Donna, as played by Laura Flynn Boyle, and Carl uh, McLaughlin, um, you know, maybe that that union, Cooper and Donna, would be uh, heinous enough to have <laughs> ruined, you know, the potential plans they had for season two, storyline-wise, and now it's cast a shadow over the return. <laughs> Because they have some crazy evil spawn which has gone around killing people. I don't know. It just seems like a weird, you know, a weird reason why they might think of doing that. Um, and to tie in the meta narrative of how that relationship has, uh, you know, played out in the history of how we think about where Twin Peaks might have gone um, if Audrey and Coop had got together in season two as originally planned. That's very interesting, actually. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. <laughs> so, Frank leaves, takes the key with him, 
hopefully that we'll get to Harry. Maybe that will be how we see Harry. Maybe yeah. he'll he'll actually get the key. Um, and then Ben has a chat with Beverly, and he says to Beverly, "Richard never had a father," hmm. which in some way seems kind of ominous because I'm sure what he means is his father was never around yeah. or didn't know who he was. But to say he never had a father is kind of like what was this, some kind of immaculate conception, mm. but satanic. I don't know. Um, and then he starts reminiscing about this bike mm. that his dad bought him, this old secondhand bike that he painted in two-tone green. And he loved the bike so much and he gets very sentimental about it. And Beverly starts to tear up because... Um, you know, Ben is obviously quite devastated about learning all the stuff about Richard. And you know, he he's, he starts talking about the bike again and again and then tells Beverly, oh, you know, arrange to pay Miriam's expenses. And then he keeps talking about the bike again. And it's the second kind of father-son thing of this episode where he's remembering how much he loved this bike because it came from his dad. And then maybe he's feeling... Is he feeling guilty about Richard being the way he is, thinking, oh, was I not a good enough father figure or something like that? Mm. Or I don't know. Because we don't really know if Richard was in their lives from a young age, or maybe he just turned up as a teenager already completely evil and yeah. saying, oh, by the way, I'm a grandson. We, we don't know. We don't. He might not have lived in Twin Peaks his whole life. And the implication that Richard Horn stopped talking to him when he stopped getting money also implies that maybe he turned up to get money in the first instance. Yeah. He was never around the whole time, but he found out that maybe his grandfather was the head of the mighty Horn clan <laughs> and he wanted to, uh, you know, get some of that money for himself. And maybe that's how he turned up and maybe that would have been the catalyst for Ben and Sylvia splitting up. Mm. And then also it's quite funny when he tells Barry to pay Miriam's hospital expenses because he asked her to call the hospital and then he can't remember Miriam's surname. Yeah. And it comes back to that thing with the letters and did Chad pick up the wrong letter from yeah. the pile because it's got a different surname on it. I think it's, again, it's a meta comment on what we've already seen, but it does also suggest that it wasn't a continuity error. I think they are going to play into this. And I think, I can't remember what you predicted, but it was something like uh, Chad's going to have the letter beaten out of him and it's going to be a letter from this other Miriam about her lost cat or something yeah. <laughs> so yeah we'll wait and see um, oh, the one thing to add in that one scene though was I'd never noticed it before but in the uh, painting on the wall behind Ben is a little Saturn as well that I hadn't seen before oh, a little yeah. image of Saturn I think or at least it's something that looks like that and I was like ah, interesting hmm. what does it mean? I don't know <laughs> and one very last thing about the scene where Ben is talking about the bike as well. It really reminded me of old season two Ben. Because mm -hmm. there's that same kind of feeling you get when Ben remembers... Uh, well, he's watching that video, isn't he? That old movie reel of the groundbreaking of the Great Northern when he's watching um, that video of his father and doing it there. And it's... It's very interesting that they have a callback to that that response that Ben had then. Certainly in light of what he's had uh, in this arc with Beverly as well, I think it's clear that he... I think he genuinely is trying to be a good person. But ultimately, I think he can't escape some of those things. Um, but it was a nice callback to that moment. Yeah. 
But Ben used to get sentimental when things started falling apart. Because didn't he have that moment where he looked at the footage after he had kind of lost Ghostwood and before yeah. he had his kind of little Civil War meltdown? Yeah. yeah. And also, the, was it that bit where he was in jail and Jerry was there and they they remember some time with, with some girl that they both really oh, who's dancing and yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, so is it a thing that happens when? things seem like they're they're all going wrong that he gets very kind of sentimental for his childhood yeah i think that that nostalgia kicks in he kind of goes to a happy place yeah um so i do wonder if that's a harbinger of what's going to happen next with ben um certainly if it involves the re-emergence of the hum and what that entails or maybe it's it there could be another thing that could happen which would be the uh the in, the re-engagement of uh, his relationship with Audrey as well. Hmm. Also, where's the hum gone? There's no hum this time. That is true, and no one's talking about it. Yeah. I have no idea how time is working, though. So is this a couple of days after the, the hum when they got the key? Oh, I mean, I think this is now the 30th of September, isn't it? So I'm a bit confused by the timeline as it relates to Richard Horn, the hit and run and that storyline. And then also the timeline involving the trip to Jack Rabbit's Palace. Yeah. I think they're probably the same. But after the scene with uh, Jesse, Deputy Jesse popping up um, after the Bobby scene in part 11, which kind of messed with how he can be in two places at once. I do wonder if there are two very subtly out of sync uh, narratives in the Twin Peaks universe as well, at least involving the Sheriff's Department. Right. Gordon Cole and his French lady friend. <laughs> what the hell are we going to make of this scene? The first time that we watched it... <laughs> It was like the kind of theatre of frustration of just this endless scene of somebody not quite leaving a hotel room. And our frustration was Albert's frustration. And they've kind of done this before, the way the Mitchum brothers were not candy. I think if they was... were in the room, they would be really pissed off at how <laughs> slow the scene was going. I think so. And it's... You know, it's kind of putting us in Albert's shoes a little bit and we're getting annoyed and he's getting annoyed and Cole is enjoying himself uh, and it's it's it doesn't necessarily make sense the first time that you watch it so you get this whole rigmarole of her putting her shoes on and doing her makeup and eventually she leaves and then at the end of all of it all that happens is that Albert tells Cole what was in Tammy's text messages and it's doubly annoying for the audience because we already know what's in her text messages. We saw her get them and send them. And it's like, was that it? We put the whole thing with her messing about with her shoes and leaving the room in the most elaborate fashion possible. And then we find out something we already knew. Yeah, I think that's very similar to what happens a few times. I mean, most notably later on when we see the hit on Warden Murphy. Mm. They've spent a lot of time showing us things that we knew were going to happen. Yeah. Which is also very odd. I mean, it's a very odd way of pacing the storyline at this point. Yeah. But then the second time we watched it, 
and we were thinking about this today, is, is this a Lil-style code that is going on, that is being imparted from one party to another? So if you remember a couple of episodes ago, when we saw Albert and Constance having their adorable date in the hotel restaurant, somebody walks in front of them in shot, carrying red roses and white lilies and a French flag. And red roses and white lilies are the same flowers that were on the chair in Denise Bryson's office. And we wondered at the time, was she sending a coded message to Cole? And then when we saw the, the roses again in that scene with Albert and Constance, we thought, is this a callback to it? Is this deliberate? Is there another code going on? What was the French flag doing there? And now we have a French woman who has turned up and who does this almost kind of like mime-like, slightly pantomime act that has echoes of Lil from Fire Walk With Me. And the fact that she's French is kind of making us think, well, is this a coded message that's been sent to Gordon? Is Gordon sending it to Albert? What is going on here? So we've got a list of all the things that Lil did. And then I've tried to make a list of all the things that the French woman does when she's leaving the room. So Lil's code, she had a sour face, which meant there would be problems with local authorities and they wouldn't be receptive to the FBI. Both her eyes were blinking, which meant there would be trouble higher up. She had one hand in her pocket, meaning local authorities were hiding something. Her other hand was made into a fist, indicating local authorities would like to be belligerent and aggressive. She's walking in place, meaning there would be a lot of legwork involved. Cole said that Lil was his mother's sister's girl, and missing in that sentence was the word uncle. And then she put her fingers in front of her eyes, and this meant that the uncle of the sheriff was in prison. That's what Cole did. Yeah, he did that funny hand gesture where he puts his hand over his head. and That's the one, yeah. 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 And she had a tailored dress with different coloured thread, which was code for drug dealing. Then she had a blue rose pinned to her dress. So that was the one from Fire Walk With Me. And then the French woman in this episode, she's smiling throughout the whole thing. So is that the opposite of having a sour face? Does that mean that wherever they're going, local authorities will be very friendly? Yeah. Which, if they're going to Twin Peaks, would kind of make sense. Yeah, they might be glad to see them. It's people they know. So yeah. Yeah, they will be friendly faces. Yeah. Um, she's wearing a red dress with a black cardigan. I have no idea how that might go but the dress is it isn't fitted it's just incredibly clingy yeah um so it could could be performing a similar kind of function certainly the colors might be important i think here because they could be tying to the lodge-like nature of where they're going as well yeah because there are drugs being dealt in twin peaks but we don't know if that's connected to whatever case it is they're being sent on to but this could be a hint that they are um it, it could actually be the first hint that maybe Red is really related to the bigger mystery in the otherworldly sense. Yeah. yeah. She puts these high heels on and then she waves her leg in the air, which must mean something different to walking in place. Mm. I, I don't know. She checks her makeup in a contact mirror and then puts lipstick on. I, I, I'm, I'm coming up blank on most of these <laughs> things. I don't know what it could mean. She drinks some more wine. She actually speaks. She says, Très bon. Yeah. Um, and then she straightens her incredibly figure-hugging dress. And she puts her fingers on her lips and then on Cole's lips, which I wondered if that was code for keep this incredibly secret. Yeah. Keep it quiet. I, I think that this is a message from Denise. 
somehow. Because I think especially it's something to do with the fact that Denise was very wary when she was talking to Cole about him and young agents and young women in particular. And I think it's interesting that maybe there's something to do with Denise knowing quite a lot about how things work with these Blue Rose cases. And I think she's actually an ally of Cole in all of this. And I wonder if that first thing with the waitress walking past with the roses and the French flag was maybe a hint that a message has been sent. Yeah. And that maybe it means that there's somebody in the bar and he has to go and meet them. Yeah. And then when he tells Albert she's here visiting a friend of her mother whose daughter has gone missing. The mother owned a tenant farm. I told her to tell the mother the daughter would turn up eventually. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it's nothing to do with Lil. <laughs> it's all an elaborate setup for David Lynch to uh, to put this joke in. He's probably like, oh, Mark Frost, you've written so much stuff in this episode. I've got something here. And he's like, yeah, go on. But the, the phrase, she's here visiting a friend of her mother whose daughter's gone missing. What's missing in that sentence is the father. Yeah. Uh, so what that then implies, given that there was the uncle missing in the other one. Um, but we're not really sure yet where it is they're being sent. I think it, I think the code will make more sense when we know where they're going yeah. and who they're meant to be interacting with. And of course, one very simple interpretation of what this message could actually mean is that the girl who is missing who will turn up is actually Laura Palmer and she'll do so for her mother, Sarah Palmer. Yes, yeah, so I think in retrospect, we will look back on the scene and it will mean something yeah. quite different. So Albert tells Cole about the texts. We already knew that. Cole says he wants to get back to his Bordeaux. And Albert asks him, what kind is it? And Cole replies, 1105. <laughs> I don't know if that's better or worse than the Cossack joke. <laughs> and then they just kind of stare at each other for a long time and then Albert puts his hand no uh, Gordon puts his hand on Albert's shoulder and says Albert sometimes I really worry about you yeah I think that reminded me a lot in terms of how it was done um, it reminded me of the scene where uh, Cole is talking to Albert outside the prison you know when it's that scene is all shot yeah, down blue filter yeah. and he says Albert 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 in this case I wonder if he is wondering if Albert was on the ball enough to see the code. It could have been a code that Cole left for Albert. And maybe he's perturbed that maybe Albert's mind is not on the job because he's thinking about something else. Maybe he's involved in something in such a way that he's he's forgotten how to read these codes or notice when they are played out right in front of him. Because he seems frustrated with the fact that Albert has taken this at face value. Yeah. But it could just be that Albert is just... You know, he just doesn't want to tolerate any more of this nonsense anymore. <laughs> you know. Yeah, because it, you know, it could be playing on this whole thing of, you know, Gordon is slightly creepy sometimes um, around younger women. There's, a, I don't know what this means in terms of whether he's having a relationship with Tammy Preston. Yeah. Because if he is, it's highly inappropriate. But if he's not, his behaviour towards Tammy is highly inappropriate. Mm. Because there are multiple times now where he puts his arm around her, yeah. particularly when they're going through a doorway. 
And if you think, well, they're having a secret relationship, okay, they probably shouldn't be having a relationship, but at least it would explain it. Yeah. But if they're not having a relationship, he needs to cut that shit out right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I have to say on the matter. <laughs> and before we move on to the next bit, I just want to mention there's one other scene which this might have relevance to, I don't know. But it's, again, from Fire Walk With Me. But the last time we had a French-speaking character um, in the context of one of these investigations, these Blue Rose cases, was the woman who spoke French who was with that man at the counter in Hap's diner mm. when Sam and Chet are speaking to the waitress, um, trying to find out about Teresa. And you have that, that woman who speaks French there. So there's something about all this that's having strange parallels with elements of Fire Walk With Me. But it's kind of unclear. Um, but I like the fact that there may be a code hidden in this. Uh, what I think is funky is the fact that at the very beginning we have that big info dump about Blue Rose cases. And maybe that means that that's at the beginning of the episode and it's a hint that everything that follows can be decoded in a blue rose style fashion hmm. um but like you say you know the later hours may inform us more on what these scenes really mean if anything yeah so then we get a very brief scene which we wonder if we would actually see or just get informed of hmm. which is hutch and chantal uh killing wolf uh killing warden murphy on instructions from mr c and we don't get any mr c in this episode but we do get his henchmen basically yeah. carrying out his orders and they're waiting around for him it's night chantelle is really hungry yeah she wants to go to wendy's <laughs> don't we all oh wendy's and um they, they just wait for him to stroll up to his door and shoot him and then you get the third father son thing of the episode which is incredibly sad, which is when his son runs out to the front of the house because obviously he's heard something going on and finds him dead on the porch. And Hutch and Chantal just drive off to Wendy's as if nothing in the world was wrong. Yeah, it's a, it's one of those moments when you know you have a sudden, very shocking scene of violence which is made all the more heart-wrenching by all of a sudden seeing his son turn up it's one of those things it seemed he seemed like quite an isolated character before you just saw him as the as the warden of the jail but then you realize you know by killing him at home it's only then that you realize he probably had a family and things like that and they it really brings it home that these people have just taken him out on the instructions of mr c and maybe speaks more to the level of destruction that mr c is capable of wreaking upon those who cross him mm. Uh, and it does make you wonder what he's been up to in the last 25 years, especially when he's got hired goons like Hutch and Chantal working for him. And then we're back with Dr. Amp. It's seven o'clock. He knows where his freedom is. <laughs> and he's doing a very similar show again. And we see Nadine watching again. And I couldn't tell if it was either very repetitive of before or if some of it was actually the same footage as before i think it's the same i think there's been many cases of that uh thus far i think the first one that happened was the insurance agent who turns up in part one where they've just reused the footage and i'm not sure if it's meant to be there for a reason or if it's there to you know 
imply that there are cycles of things happening again and again. Um, but that opening scene does look exactly the same. Either that or they shot it imperceptibly different. And also the first reaction shot of Nadine looks like that's reused as well. Although she has extra dialogue here, which may just be an extension of that initial scene. Because the first time we saw her, we just saw her face, didn't we? And then uh, she was watching Dr. Amp on the screen, but that was it. Yeah. yeah. And I had, it made me feel kind of sad this time. Because this is the third time now that we've seen one of Dr. Amp's shows beginning. And the first time, it's bloody hilarious because you've theorised about what the gold shovels mean and you've talked yourself into thinking that it's some vitally important stuff about alchemy or the soul or something. Why are they gold? Why is this important? And then it turns out that he's some, you know, paranoid conspiracy nut selling magical gold shovels on the internet. <laughs> and it was really funny. And then the second time it happened... It's funny because you see Nadine's store and the uh, run silent, run drapes mm. pun uh, from run silent, run deep. And we had a lot of fun trying to think up our own puns for a store name for that one. But this third time that you see it, the repetition of it, it actually made me feel kind of sad that it's seven o'clock again and Dr. Amp is on his uh, ramblings and, and getting incredibly upset and agitated again. And Nadine is watching the same thing again. And it's like their lives are on repeat. Is this what they do at seven o'clock every night? Yeah. Or every Friday night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, yeah, I felt kind of bad for them this time. Yeah, there's a, you're right, there is a tinge of sadness that it's not just that, that that's what we're seeing in the return, but you do wonder what's happened to these residents who we left 25 years ago. And we're catching up with now and it's sad to potentially see that some of them may be stuck in these cycles. Although, you know, it's great that Nadine has a business which we hope is thriving and things like that. It's odd to see them um, doing the same thing again and again and again. Maybe being sucked into watching the show again and again. And also the fact that we we keep seeing Nadine, but we don't see Big Ed. Mm. And obviously, although we see Audrey later on, I'm actually much keener on seeing Big Ed return, mainly because I always felt that his arcs were more in tune with what I thought was interesting, which is, you know, his link to James, his links to Nadine, and also his link to the Bookhouse Boys as well. Hmm. Um, I think he had a lot of uh, really wonderful moments, and I really wished he had been the one who had returned uh, this week, but hopefully it'll be next week. We don't know. Um but the one thing that I did think about, and it maybe just was because we've been watching um, like random episodes um, <laughs> in the last uh, week, was uh, I think a couple of days ago we rewatched part eight. And it's odd. This time when I was watching Dr. Amp, something made me think for the first time when I saw him about the Lincoln Woodsman. Mm-hmm. Mainly because there was a guy with a beard. He was quite dishevelled. He had the same repetitive message. You know, got a light, got a light was one. Or his, this is the water, this is the well speech. Um, there was the fact that the woodsman looked like Lincoln. And that there is a reference to liberty and freedom 
in this as well and Dr. Amp turning around to illuminate that little um, light box photograph of the Statue mm. of Liberty and things. It just made me think what is the parallel that they're drawing here if there is one you know it did it wouldn't have made any sense if we hadn't seen the woodsman for yeah. example but now i've seen the woodsman i've seen those images of him so many times of him giving that speech over a radio to all these people who are listening who are kind of in a slight trance-like state listening to this over and over again you know it does make you wonder where that storyline with Jacoby or Dr. Amp is really going. Uh, certainly with that being in the same episode that Sarah is saying that men are coming. Mm. And I think that that could mean many things. I mean, we said it could be the woodsman. It could be Mr. C. It could be, it could be Bob. It could be the fact that the FBI are coming or some other element is turning up. But I don't like the fact that it could be the woodsman. We've had the weird things in the woods with Jerry and maybe he has seen something there because we know he might have, he might be free yeah. he might have escaped but we don't know what he saw and maybe he saw these woodsmen too uh, maybe dropping out of the sky or something like they did before there's something about it all and I see Jacoby's radio show and the parallels are a bit striking and I, I it's it made me in the same way that watching it was quite sad it was quite unsettling this time knowing what those scenes could imply if the woodsmen do show up. Um, certainly you don't want them talking and Nadine listening. <laughs> you know, I think that would be a, a really tragic and very dark arc to take place. And the weird way that this scene ends, um, when Jacoby, Dr. Tramp, is getting kind of more and more pent up, and he's sort of shouting and he shouts, the ninth circle of hell will welcome you. And then it's just like an instant cut. Here's Audrey. <laughs> just standing there. And it's like, what the heck? Now, if you get me on the subject of Dante and the Divine Comedy, I'll be here all night. Yeah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. Not it's not an exaggeration. Yeah. But that is a reference to uh, Divine Comedy, by the way. Um, the Ninth Circle of Hell is where traitors are left in hell, basically. But it was just an incredibly abrupt end. Where he's shouting like that. And then suddenly this character that you've been waiting for for months basically is just standing there and it's very silent yeah. and she stands there in silence as the camera very slowly pans around to find Charlie mm. also sitting there in silence but that's the thing I think you know I don't want to jump too far ahead but the way that scene starts with it all being quiet it does seem unreal it seems like they're waiting for somebody to say action <laughs> that's the thing about it it's see it you know I think we'll you know, it, it's unclear what's going on in the scene and we'll, and we'll go through it, but the fact that they're just pausing, staring at each other is very unnatural. And, you know, there's something not right about it, so I'm not prepared to take this scene at face value. Yeah. So, to attempt to run through the actual things that are discussed in the scene before we try and figure out what on earth the entire thing might actually mean... Audrey wants to look for a guy named Billy who has been missing for two days. She had a dream the previous night where Billy was bleeding and dreams sometimes happen to truth and she's very worried about Billy. Some guy named Chuck, who is certifiable, has told her that Tina was the last person to see Billy. She's married to Charlie 
for some reason Charlie is meant to go and f help her find Billy even though she's having an affair with Billy she may or may not be divorcing Charlie we don't understand what these papers are that they refer to could be divorce papers it could be something else he says that they're fishy which kind of made us think about Catherine and the, the life policy and she says shall I get Paul to pay you a visit who the hell is Paul who's Tina who are any of these people <laughs> he's sort of saying are you going to renege on a contract we don't is this is there some kind of strange contract between them that isn't just the marriage but something else is there some reason why they're together that means he isn't quite so upset about the fact that she seems to be having an affair with yeah. someone and he, she gets him to call Tina to ask her about it he says oh didn't you know that Chuck stole Billy's truck and Billy called the police and they got the truck back and he dropped the charges and then Charlie calls Tina to ask her did you see Billy uh, it's implied that Tina won't speak if her husband's there but she does speak so that suggests that her husband's not there and then some incredibly important unbelievable piece of information is imparted on the other end of the phone that we don't find out and Audrey doesn't find out and she starts shouting, are you really not going to tell me? And the audience is also shouting, are you really not going to tell us? What the hell is going on? And it's all really stagey and weird. Mm. There's something not right about the whole scene. Beyond the level of frustration that it's deliberately attempting to build. You know, there's a reason why they've waited this long to bring a character like Audrey back in. And then introduced her in such a bizarre way. And there are parallels in here towards things that we've seen like the stolen truck but none of the names are right we know that Bing was looking for Billy in the double R diner and all the people switched over but is that the same Billy we don't know who Billy is some people think it might be the farmer who knew something about Richard in the truck but that was only because Bing was looking for somebody who was missing who was called Billy and in that episode there was a character who was the farmer who was meant to meet Andy, who did go missing. Yeah. There's no implication that he was called Billy, and certainly I think if he was meant to be called Billy, his name would have been in the credits, because if, if now he's dead, yeah, um, he'll never be seen again, so it would have been relevant to have revealed his name then, which they didn't do. Yeah. So none of it makes sense, and the only connection we really have to Twin Peaks is the fact that she wants to go and look for Billy at the Roadhouse, even though Billy really hated the Roadhouse. Yeah. Apparently. Which is, it's just strange. I mean, it's the most melodramatic that Twin Peaks has been in The Return. Yeah. It's overwrought with uh, sudden about turns, revelations, uh, strange uh, moments dropped into the conversations that seem to be huge bombshells being dropped for both characters mm -hmm. as well. Um, you know it's it's very strange I mean I think the one thing I would preface any discussion with is the fact that I can't remember when it was but you know after it had been filmed but before the publicity had started really you know, Sherilyn Fenn did appear to be upset with what was being done with her character mm. it was unclear you know what the nature of that was my feeling from this is that I don't think she's part of the main narrative at all. She's a side character. 
in her and she might be in her own little subplot but i don't think it's going to be a huge piece of the twin peaks mythology um, i think she will interact with everyone she will meet cooper at some point i don't know but it doesn't seem like she is being lined up to be part of the main mystery of you know what's going on in the woods and laura and bob in the same way that other characters are um it just seems a bit strange but the whole scene seems very unnatural the acting is very odd it's very stilted in places and it's so yeah it's just so overwrought with emotion but without much substance to it 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 seems like this is something being played out for an audience rather than for the people involved yeah and i i can't believe that at this point they're actually going to introduce all these new characters we've got six <laughs> hours left Dougie Cooper's still bumbling around Las Vegas. Yeah. Cole and the gang are still in Buckhorn. They haven't even found the dossier yet. Team Jackrabbit haven't got up off their asses and gone to Jackrabbit's palace yet. All these things have to happen. Where the hell is Laura? There's all this important stuff to come. And I know everyone was getting quite frustrated about who are all these new people that are being referenced. I don't think they're important. I'm not sure that we'll ever find out who Tina or Tina's husband or Chuck or... Maybe we won't even know who Billy is. I think we're going to get some revelation very soon that might explain what all this is about. But I don't think it's going to end up being that important. Um, the only thing that is potentially interesting is the name Charlie. Hmm. Because I think the title of is it the next It's the next episode. Is, what is it? So, um, what's that story again, Charlie? Or yeah. something what's like that. What's that story again, Charlie? I think, I think it's, uh, what story is that, Charlie? And again, the the idea that I mean, I know you can't take these titles literally, but you know, the idea of it being a story is probably quite important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the other thing I did think about with this was, you know, the original idea for Mulholland Drive was Audrey Horn goes to Hollywood, and you know, these references to the Roadhouse and the fact she's still called Audrey. I do wonder if maybe she's like written a a play about her own life or something almost like a, a warped version of her life maybe with the added intrigue that um it's kind of all you would have done you know mm. embellished it with intrigue and mystery when it wasn't necessarily there but there's something about this whole sequence which is a bit strange and i think potentially the the you know using character names again like billy could just be a bit of a misdirection um, that does happen in Twin Peaks occasionally, you know, two characters with one name doesn't mean they're the same person or even linked in any way. But going back to what we said earlier on in the episode, if this is something where Audrey is talking about the roadhouse and all these things, I do wonder if maybe, you know, we were saying that the mother of Richard is potentially absent when Frank is talking to Ben. And maybe although we're meant to think that she's in Twin Peaks, maybe this is part of the Hollywood fantasy or something and you know if it is a story that she's that she's written about herself like a highly sort of fantastical version maybe she's nowhere near maybe she just left and that's why she's you know we're meant to think she's in Twin Peaks but actually she isn't so this might be a bit of a bonkers theory right but we know that Audrey was in a coma after the bank explosion and nothing's been referred to about her 
since then about her waking up or what she's been doing. Let's say for a moment that Richard is her son. Uh, why would it be that no one had mentioned going to tell Audrey about what was going on? What if she is still in a coma in the hospital? And what if whoever this Charles figure is, is someone who works at the hospital, a, a doctor, a nurse, a, um, someone who visits to talk to patients, and he is actually telling her, it could be like the town gossip of what's been going on, he could be telling her stories, the way that she's getting this information, the way that it in some ways resembles things that are happening like the stolen truck and the missing person, could it be that she is getting this information from the outside world but it's filtering into her mind and her mind is interpreting it in a different way which is why the names are different and why it doesn't make sense and why that conversation is so weird and the way that he just stares at her at the end and doesn't say anything and she gets really angry that he's not talking is that cause, literally because he's gone off somewhere he's not sitting next to her talking to her at that point in time and she's got to wait for him to come back it would it would explain why the scene was so weird but it would be a bit of an out there thing to do I think to basically have an actual coma dream going on but I wouldn't put anything past Twin Peaks yeah I think it's you know it's a intriguing possibility and certainly it might fit with the fact that you know he's got all that paper in front of him yeah maybe he is just represented as in her dream somebody who just has all this information and can go and find information when he calls people up so it's her subconscious interacting with maybe the things that she's vaguely interpreting from things he's saying. Maybe he's just sitting there visiting people in the hospital reading things from the Twin Peaks Gazette or something. And then we're back in Buckhorn and it's still that night and Diane's at the bar and even though they're closed she's managed to get a giant glass of vodka mm. from them. Um, and you get the weird kind of humming sound of the vacuum cleaner behind this whole thing. It gives it a kind of an eerie tone to it. And she's punching the coordinates in, which she's memorised really well, uh, that she saw from Ruth's arm. And uh, she zooms in on the map and zooms in and zooms in and realises that it's taken to Twin Peaks. Dum, dum, dum! <laughs> yeah, and the way she does it is really odd. Was it? So the she used a mnemonic to yeah. remember it, even though numbers were smushed and hard to read. So I couldn't work out what she was saying when she was looking for. I thought she was reading out the numbers to herself. But no, she says coordinates plus two. Mm -hmm. So I don't know where she got the plus two from, unless that's part of the mnemonic. What I wonder is, does the code, um, you know, does it only go to a certain location, but the plus two is something that she's been given information about uh, to change be. one of the numbers in the coordinates to make it go to the right place? Mm. Um, maybe as a you know like part of the code is missing or something um, it's a bit weird what that's about but it is that moment when they're zooming in you see it's Twin Peaks and you're like oh, it's all going to take place there it's all everyone is heading back there I think in some way and she seems to be a bit startled about this yeah because maybe she didn't realise that this was where it would be heading yeah obviously we don't know who she's working for but um, maybe she didn't realise the full extent of that it really was going to involve this old case with Cooper. Yeah, it does. It does suggest that, you know, she is doing something underhand. 
but this may be the first moment when she's realised either that she's been doing it without questioning it and that wasn't the right thing to do or she maybe has a hint of who might be behind all of this but certainly given the first conversation that happens at the very beginning of the episode although Diane's not present the audience is specifically told that Philip Jeffries is part of the original Blue Rose team yeah and so if Jeffries is still the puppet master behind the interactions with Diane you know it is tying together at least for the audience in how this could all be fitting together yeah because if you remember there was all the weird stuff in Buenos Aires with that machine in the dish that was receiving texts from people it received the cow jumped over the moon message from Mr C in prison it it looked like it received a message from Lorraine when she was texting to say that the hit on someone hadn't been done I don't know if it's intercepting messages copying them receiving them forwarding it could them. be a hub yeah where it, where messages come in and ping back again and things yeah but the connection from that location to Philip Jeffries must be intentional he must be involved in in some way and indeed Ray thinks that he's talking to Jeffries and, yeah. and taking the orders to kill Mr C yeah which you know I do wonder if in the same way that Mr C has his own network of goons you know, is Ray part of the network of Philip Jeffries? Does he have people all over the place? Maybe Diane's part of that network. Um, it may mean that, you know, maybe Ray isn't all bad. Uh, you know, by inference, maybe Diane isn't all bad. It's, mm. it's really hard to know what's going on. It's interesting that these characters are so morally ambiguous. And everything you see just makes things murkier. You know, they're giving us a lot, but they're also not making it any clearer which i think is kind of cool yeah and i don't know if this means that cole and albert will have tapped diane's phone sufficiently that they can also tell what she's looking up if they're just getting her text messages yeah so, so i don't think we mentioned it earlier on but at the end of the scene where uh albert has gone to cole and so i think we forgot it because we spent just like the episode so much time with that scene where the french woman is leaving that we forgot what actually happened in. um <laughs> But yeah, uh, Albert has another um, message, which is the one that he's intercepted from Diane, where it says, you know, Las Vegas question mark, they haven't asked. And Cole says something like, um, you know, what is it we haven't asked yet? So they don't know what's going on, but now they have a link to Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, they will know that if that comes up in their investigations they should probably follow it. And I think that's going to tie, again, so we mentioned this in our listener questions episode that we put out yesterday. This probably will tie to the fact that the Fusco friends are going to find that Dougie's fingerprint is the same as Dale Cooper's. Yeah. And that that's going to flag with the FBI. And the FBI are going to know that there's now a potential sighting of dale cooper maybe even with the right fingerprint set up as well uh in las vegas and then they will know we have to go there because this is something that diane was nosing around with or somebody did or did not want them to investigate uh through their interactions with diane yeah and then finally we're at the roadhouse 
and we've got another bunch of random youngsters sitting at one of the booths talking about their lives. Um, to be honest, I didn't catch any of their names this time. <laughs> but you've got two women who are talking about another woman who's in a relationship with a guy, but then he's also seen with another woman. And the first woman's going to be really upset. And she's off her meds and her mother just died. And then this other guy turns up and he says, oh, some maniac just drove him off the road. And then he goes to get a beer. <laughs> and it's, it's like it's suddenly cut to, I don't know, the middle of an episode of The O.C. or something. It's like, what what is happening here? Who are these people? And there's just more names. And there's so many names now that I can't even remember any of the names. <laughs> the names, the names! <laughs> I think this is the weird thing about this scene. It's the fact that I put down all the crazy names and the melodrama of the Audrey scene to it potentially being a bit you know not right there was something about it maybe it wasn't real maybe it was a performance um I don't know but the fact we had that same level of melodrama here (laughs) in the roadhouse is very strange yeah um especially because you know it doesn't really tie to any other characters it ta- I mean, you know, it's nice to see Scott Coffey again, who turns up in lots of David Lynch's <laughs> works. But he is behaving in the most fidgety kind of, you know, skittish kind of manner. Yeah. Um, and what he does say is he was chased off the road on the way in and all he saw were two headlights. So yeah. somebody is on their way to Twin Peaks. Yeah. And his hand gets a bit shaky as well. His hand is... gets a bit shaky. Mm, genius. Um, I mean, I think that's going to turn out to be Mr. C. Mr. C must be on his way because he'd sent Hutch to uh, take out the warden with Chantel. And obviously there's still the situation that must be resolved at some point, which which will be what's going to happen with Duncan Todd uh, and maybe Dougie uh, when Hutch and Chantel head in that direction as well. But the last thing we saw was a few episodes ago now. We saw Mr. C in that truck or van driving off and he seems to know where he's meant to be going. Yeah. Um, it does now tie to the fact that he might be going to where Ray is going and all these characters might actually be going towards Twin Peaks. Yeah. I mean, headlights at night are now associated with Mr. C specifically, yeah. with him in cars, whether he's driving, whether he's in a car with Ray. Yeah. That's the context in which we see them. So I think it could be that he's on his way. Yeah. And, and and this is meant to be, you know, foreshadowing his arrival in Twin Peaks. I I think the people in general won't be seen again, just like we didn't see Scratchy Armpit Woman and her friend again, or those other women who got harassed by Richard Horn after they asked for a light. I, I think in the Roadhouse, even Shelley's friends. Yeah. Obviously we see Shelley again, but we don't see her friends again. I I think the Roadhouse is just giving us these glimpses of the lives of the people who rock up there for an evening to have a drink and we see these little vignettes of them um often just before the music plays yeah and that's it i I think beyond that we'll we'll probably never see any of these you know attractive millennials and their personal problems again (laughs) yeah i don't know i i can see where you're coming from with that but i also think that we will see elements of these plots picked up because I think we've probably got, you know, another episode which is going to be maybe tying up loose ends, I hope. But, you know, ultimately everyone does have to come to Twin Peaks and there will still be 
maybe not a lot, but maybe four hours. Maybe the last four hours will be set in Twin Peaks almost exclusively. Um, I can see a situation where, you know, there are going to be things that Big Ed has to do, James has to do, Laura has to do, Bob has to do, Sarah, you know, some version of Coop, even if it's just Doppelkoop has to come to <laughs> Twin Peaks and do stuff. Uh, Cole and the gang are going to show up. Loads of things are converging, but, you know, it just seems like, you know, we want it to be now, but it's still, you know, it's still a bit of a way away. But we do still have, you know, six hours of Twin Peaks left. Yeah, we're two thirds of the way in, basically. Yeah. And if you think of the sheer volume of stuff that happens in the first third or the second third of the show, you realise yeah. how much is still to come. Yeah. And I remember, you know, if, if you look back at, you know, the pilot episode of Twin Peaks, in that 90 minutes, they cover a huge amount. Mm. And I think they will, they're not going to, um, you know, I think drag it out too much. But I think we might end up with, you know, a four hour block of Twin Peaks heavy stuff, but it will just be pure Twin Peaks. Yeah. The other thing is things are getting timey-wimey in the Roadhouse again because the chromatics are wearing the same things that they were wearing at the end of episode two. Yeah. Just like Au Revoir Simone were wearing the same clothes. But the difference might be that the chromatics seem to be lit differently. Mm. But I don't know what that means. I mean, it could just be, I mean, it's just a different light set, I suppose. It's not, <laughs> nothing special. But they did look like they were wearing the same clothes. So is it the same night? I mean, are we just looking at a different part of the roadhouse to where Shelley is sitting with her friends and uh, James is about to show up? I mean, maybe that's where that scene goes on. I mean, I do wonder if one of those people who the two young women is talking about is uh, that guy who was with James who turned uh, up in the end of part two, the one with the green the glove. Random, the random British guy. Yeah, it could be it could be that guy. But it's hard to know at the moment. But, you know, it's very easy to get frustrated with all these questions. But, you know, I think they will be in part clarified. Um, but, yeah, we've only got six hours left. So that's it for our roundup of what happened in part 12. Certainly not the episode we were expecting, um, but maybe one which will become more relevant uh, in the final few hours. I, I don't think it's going to rank as the high point of the season. Um, but I do wonder if in the context of watching this as an 18 hour piece, we just won't notice it as a particularly weak hour. It may just be you know, a slightly, um, I don't know, like a, a slightly differently paced hour with moments that we don't think are the most relevant. And, and it could be that some of these things don't go anywhere. But I think something will happen with the Audrey storyline. Yeah. But it may just not be as satisfying as we might hope it's going to be. Um, it just seems, yeah, like a... Like we were saying right at the start, it, it is a bit like a mishmash of lots of different things. Uh, and they may only make sense later on. But it does seem like this is a product of the edit rather than the script. Mm. 
I wonder if some of these events appeared at different points and they've just all been grouped here. Certainly bits just seem out of place like the Dougie playing catch scene uh, and the jarring way in which the Audrey scene is introduced. Yeah, I think just being at a point in the show where so many plots are in motion and you really want to see progress particularly with some of them like Dougie Coop you know a lot of people want to see him wake up been waiting a long time you know it'll come eventually but it might not even come for another couple of hours and there's all these all these balls in the air that we're trying to juggle and we're expecting one thing to happen with this episode and instead what they've done is throw several more balls at us for us to keep juggling (laughs) With all these new characters and new storylines and even the little things like Carl talking to that guy who we've never seen before mm. and these these little scenes these little characters that might not be important but it just feels like we were just starting to get to grips with this information and here's some more information yeah we're just going to throw it at you and don't, you don't know what's happening anymore yeah it does it really seems like there are really critical pieces of information in this episode which are deliberately buried in a lot of fluff. And I think certainly on rewatching it, I realise how good the scenes with Sarah are. And I think those are going to be very prominent in the future. I think it's important that they uh, pushed the Hawk arc further as well, because that then allows potentially the investigation into, or the trip to Jack Rabbit's palace to be linked at least via hawk to sarah palmer yeah and that maybe will tie in from both sides to how coop is going to fit into twin peaks itself um but more you know more generally i think it was a frustrating hour mainly because you know i felt that we were promised something and we didn't get it Whereas in previous weeks, I've been happy to have been kept completely in the dark. And then you're always surprised. It just seemed weird that they would have so much heavy promotion about certain aspects and Mm. those things didn't appear. But like you said at the very beginning, it could just be the result of the people who made it thinking that that's what's going to happen next. Um, But maybe this just speaks to the fundamental point that is the response that we're having not really directed at the quality of the episode but because deep down we know that we may only have six hours of Twin Peaks left and we've just waited 26 years for more Twin Peaks we finally got it this summer and it's becoming clear that we're 12 hours down and it's not going to run forever. There's a, there's another six hours, and I, I don't think necessarily it's coming back afterwards. And we know that we don't want to have a situation where we're left with unresolved storylines, Yeah. which could have been resolved if some of these minor plot strands weren't put in. We don't want to end up at the end of Hour 18 with a you know fundamental How's Annie-style... <laughs> cliffhanger after all that for them to have botched the ending that would be mm. really frustrating i didn't they have but i think we don't want to reflect it and think 
there were moments that could have been cut from the return that would have made very good missing pieces <laughs> but maybe detracted from uh, the ability to energize certain arcs to get them where they needed to be um, at the right time saying that I still have tremendous faith in what Lynch, Frost and the creative team are doing and you know I would still rather watch a middle of the road episode of New Twin Peaks than most of the other rubbish which is on television at the moment <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's very true I mean, at, at the moment we were talking about this earlier today that you know, we're, we're watching episodes of Twin Peaks again and re-watching them and the only other show on TV at the moment that's really holding our attention is Orphan Black yeah and we're basically watching Twin Peaks and Orphan Black every week and a lot of the other stuff that's on it's like eh. yeah I mean it was fine yeah. at least a few episodes back when Better Call Saul was running yeah <laughs> yeah there are a few things which you can watch which are really good but the bar has been raised so far by this new season that you know maybe we're comparing we're getting to the point where we're comparing episodes of Twin Peaks to other episodes of Twin Peaks and that's not really a fair thing <laughs> You know, because we're spending the rest of our time trying to find uh, as much creativity or uh, challenging use of the of the form of television uh, in any other show, and we just don't see it at the moment. So it's kind of, you know, was this the best hour of the return so far? No, but it was still very watchable, and you know, it's. It has provided a lot of food for thought. Yeah. And honestly, I think that, you know, I I do occasionally try and be a writer and write sci-fi and stuff. And since this new season began, I have felt creatively more energised than at any point that I have for several years. I think just the inventiveness of it and its ability to just astound... And I do wonder if to some extent I was in a, a kind of narrative malaise of watching the same kind of shows again and again. A lot of the shows that we were watching, they were really just in a stuck in a rut and rehashing the same kind of storylines again. And a lot of them were thinking, can we even really be bothered to keep watching these shows? <laughs> There's nothing that interesting or inventive going on anymore. Nobody was pushing the boundaries of what they were trying to achieve. And nobody was taking risks. And everything was very dull. And since Twin Peaks has come back, I've had more ideas and just more enthusiasm for actually creating something than I have for a very long time. And I find that very, very exciting. Yeah, that's something you just don't see anywhere else. No. So, yeah, that's it for part 12. Let's rock. <laughs> yeah. Thank you again for listening, for following us on twitter all of our exploits for engaging with us talking to us sending us your questions sending us your theories commenting on our episodes um it's really nice to speak to everyone it's nice to know when you enjoy our episodes please keep sharing and retweeting them and let us know what you think about them and let us know what you think about not only what we're talking about but let us know what you're thinking about with these episodes it's really fun to look at it from all these different perspectives 
Um, we're on Twitter at TFCAA. We have a website, www.timeforcakesnail.com. We're on Facebook, uh, Time for Cakes Nail. And yeah, please do get in touch, send us your feedback. And if you have a moment, go to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a five-star rating and a review. Yeah, and look out for our latest poll from Cole as well, which will be going up on Twitter this week. Excellent. That's it for now. Uh, We'll see you next week for part 13. Mm. Goodbye. Goodbye.